The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Appreciate y'all being with us. Another episode of Tuesday Morning Coffee. Brad here, and I'm with Tony the Soxwoodall. Hey, hey, hey. Listen, I'm hired of people sending me messages after these deals talking about why your socks are shaming mine every week. Well, So I decided to pull out my springs. I got some competition today. We got uh, some nice socks. I've, I've got some socks here. And uh-huh. I don't know when the whole socks thing came about, but you know, David at Mastermind, uh-huh. he was in the airport and he brought me, he saw some socks that he liked. He uh-huh. said, these look like Brad and, and brought me some socks. So Ever since then, you're the sock king. Yeah. That other business, we got to get started on the side. Well, I think it started because uh, my, my socks never matched. And I don't match them. Now, Miss Henrietta that does our laundry really helps with that. And so if, if I don't know if I'm matching. I am matching today. But if I am matching, it's because Miss Henrietta takes care, good care of us. and She ties them together. Right. Socks. Right. But it's like, I don't have time to match DM socks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, well, it is. Like, how many years do people match, like, in terms of time, do they spend of their life matching socks? Well, it's been 61 for me so far. (laughs) You get what I'm saying, though. (laughs) Cool. So, we'll get going. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about why we never make offers. And I think that's one of the things that people have a really, really tough time understanding as they jump in to our systems and processes, especially if they've done real estate in the past, Mm -hmm. is they always want to make that offer. They want to make that offer. And they, they really have a tough time bridging the conversation whenever the seller says, well, what's your offer? Mm-hmm. You know, And that's what we ran into a little bit on triage call yesterday. We do call review every two weeks. I'm thinking about doing it every week because we had so many calls come in. So with the apprenticeship, we take a couple hours every two weeks right now and review people's calls. So they record the calls, send them in. We review them. I do it live. So I haven't heard the call yet. And so one of the things, I think it was Rachel, she had someone say, well, you know, you just look it up on Zillow and make me an offer, Yeah, you know, but she, she handled that really, really well, uh-huh. really, really well. So we're going to be talking about that. Before we do that, I want to talk about the deal of the day. This is second place in Center Point, Alabama. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we've got that one closing out today. Really? It's closing out today. So well, I, I'm going to love hearing how the hat worked out. Yeah. It was okay. Okay. It was Okay. Yeah. So I think we paid 74, it sold at 140, 135, okay. something like that. There's a little bit of rehab in that, uh, but did all right. Good. Yeah, did all right. So another one bites the dust. Yeah, you know, that was a, just a cute house. Yeah, it was. When I saw it, it had this unique uh, 1910, early 1900s uh, cobblestone that they were loose stone that were stacked. And it, it, was, it was really pretty. Like yeah. Inside and outside. Inside was unique. Now, wasn't it on the historic registry? Yeah, yeah the Jefferson County, which is where Birmingham is, which okay. has been the largest city in Alabama for years and years until now. Huntsville, right, has jumped out there. But yeah, it was in the historic on the historic registry. Interesting, interesting. And what was that exterior? Some kind of stone? I've never. Yeah, it's like a cobblestone. Okay, and they're round, a uh, small cut stone, and they have just the slightest bit of 
of um, mortar yeah. in the back of them that it sticks to. Yeah. So you don't see mortar in between them like you do concrete block or like, right. you, yeah. So really, you it need- It was really done well. Uh-huh. It was really done well. Well, we're, we're glad to see every house that we buy go in one way or another. Oh, I, one, one thing that happened was uh, this guy, he came to look at it, and I forget what for, but he was standing there staring at it, and he said, you know, I'm not sure that how long these stones are going to stand. I said, I get it, man. So far, they've only been here since 1960. <laughs> <laughs> they've only lasted a little over 100 years so far, so right. I get your point. I'd be afraid of that. He goes, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's really funny. I remember on that house that we had in Sligo. So this house was lakefront, but it was so far down the hill that you couldn't really see it. Yeah. But the slope was so bad, it was on scaffolding. The house was on scaffolding and I-beams. And so I sent Jim Bruno out to look at it because I'd never seen that before. And I don't, I don't know that I've seen it since. Uh-huh. And he said, Brad, no, it wasn't Jim Bruno. It was Scott Treslow, who is a home inspector. I have... If we can get him off his boat at the lake, yeah, he's great. So when I started selling real estate, I think he was my, he might've been my second home inspector that I ever, my, on my second deal that I ever had, he was a home inspector. And, you know, I was 18, maybe 19 years old and I didn't know anything about housing to the point that my first home inspector, this was on 108 Arnold Lane. I was a buyer agent and uh, I told the home inspector, I said, if you can check under the slab, I didn't know the difference in a slab and a crawl. <laughs> that's kind of embarrassing looking back. Nobody knows till they know. But that's right. You know, everything's learned in this business. And so, but what I would do, Scott was so good to me. He would do the home inspection and I would be there with him. And he would tell me what he was doing. Uh-huh. You know, and he would say, and he taught me a lot about structural movement. You know, the difference in stair-step crack or crack going through a block and know, twisting of houses, you look down a side, or okay. if you're looking at an in- interior door and you see like a crack going a direction, it's pointing to the movement. I didn't know that. Oh, so at the top of a door, if the crack's going that way, it's pointing to the movement. Right. Yeah. Oh. So maybe. Yeah, well, at 61, Tony, I just learned it. Well, you know, we're all learning. <laughs> so it, it was always good to have him around. So we're glad to see that one go. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is we have an email going out this week. I don't know if I've told you this. So I got an email. So the emails that, that you guys read come from me. Okay. So like if you reply to them, it's actually me. It goes to my phone. I see them. You know, just like <laughs> if Tony emailed me, I get an email from you. And I had a guy email me and he said, if you're so successful, why do you charge for mentorship? It should be free. And he said, how about you show me, a, I'll show you mine. <clears throat> uh, I bet you won't show yours. And I said, I'll match you as long as you want to go. And I'll let it go. And then we had two HUDs come in that day. So I sent him two HUDs from that day, that single day where we're selling two properties. Uh-huh. This was uh, <coughs> Manchester, Greengrass Way, Greengrass and Way. McMinnville, can't remember Airport Lake. Airport Lake Road. So I sent him those two HUDs. I said, well, here's my two for, for today. I'm ready to see your two. I haven't heard from the guy since. Yeah. You know, but all that to say, I do end the, the idea of being dubious. And I do understand the idea of, there's a lot of misinformation, I feel like, in the real estate education space. Yeah. But it's like he didn't have a good response. You know, and the thing is, like, if I'd sent him a thousand HUDs, he'd just say, Well, it probably doesn't work right. Yeah. I mean, is there somebody out there that's not doing it the way it should be being done? Yes. Yes. With anything. And that's with anything. And so, I mean, there's somebody out there that makes a, 
a terrible lemon icebox pie. That does not mean my mother's lemon icebox pie is terrible. <laughs> and at the same time, there are folks that aren't doing it right. There are, you know, thousands and thousands of investors out here. Either parts of groups are on their own mm-hmm. who've been doing it right for 30 and 40 years. They're as honest as the day is long. And so the assumption that because someone's successful is they're, they're cutting corners and they're not doing the right thing is just not, not true nor fair. Yeah. Yeah. So to group everyone <coughs> in a certain box is incorrect all the time. All the time. You know, and it doesn't matter what group of people and what box. Mm-hmm. That there's just no way to do that, mm-hmm. you know. So, painting the broad brushstroke is is almost always a bad decision. You actually are hurting yourself. A lot of times, it's just fear. Yeah. And I don't want to be I don't want to be left there holding my bag of fear. So I'm going to give you hand you a bag of something. You're a bag of 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 not honest. You're a bag of inflating your success. Whatever it is, they're going to hand you a bag because I don't want to deal with my bag of fear. Right. That's 100%. I've been holding for years. Yeah. It's really (laughs) tough to challenge someone, especially someone that has had a way of thinking for a certain, a a good chunk of time, because it's like that, that way of thinking has been sunk cost at that point. So for me to change my viewpoint, I will have had to have been wrong all that time. Uh And then you have to realize, well, what could I have done in that time? To a certain extent, like people will just shut down because they can't handle the realization of they could have been better, they could have done more. Mm-hmm. And now it's like they're always behind. Well, like me and you know someone here in town that had a great business, the crash took him out, and now he just can't seem to recover. Uh, it's sad. Um, it's sad. And I lived, I, I mean, I lived that way for about 20 years. You know, I had a big crash in my own life. And a lot of times, you know, we don't need any help from an industry or the economy or anything else to experience a crash. Mm-hmm. I'm quite capable of running my vehicle into anything I want to <laughs> and did. And so you live with a lot of, uh, you, you start caring more about what other people, you value more about what other people think about you or what you think they think about you. Then you value what you believe about you. Right. And the only thing that gives you any power to get up from whatever crash you've, you've caused or it happened to you is you start paying more attention to what I believe about me. That's really what empowers you. It's what I believe about me. Yeah. And um, so it's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, on that note, <clears throat> a big side note, I started a, it's supposed to be a mental toughness challenge called 75 hard. Have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So for those of you. Buddies that, have done it. Okay, cool. So I did two and a half hard on it. You did? Yeah. <laughs> two and a half days. I quit on a Wednesday at lunch. <laughs> So uh, the idea is uh, two workouts a day. One of them is outside, gallon of water a day, 10 pages of nonfiction, progress picture, and a diet. And I'm on day four right now, but it's kind of the same thing. It's like, for me, it's about what's the belief system of myself if I don't do this. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, it's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be hard. It's like, okay. And I agree that it probably is, but it's like, if I can't do this, that says, some, I'm going to believe something about me that I cannot allow to happen. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's driving forward. You know, we just can't do it. I remember when we went to that, we went to the mastermind we went to that time and uh, where we kind of started seeing that we actually had something to offer. Yeah. You know, and I remember sitting there thinking while I was in that, I, I was listening to someone and I was thinking, you know, uh, Brad was 20 five or 26 when I started working with him. And at that time, I knew that he had, he had something 
uh, I didn't know it immediately, but I knew it after the first three months when I was talking to, when I would go out and meet with people. And it's like, gosh, this is, this is good. I just, I realized then that there was something in you. Your grandmother had put something in you that, that caused you to believe the right things about yourself. And you were not waiting on someone else to believe in you. Those things don't come easy. They come through hardship. And, um, that, I mean, that's the thing I look at now. I, I realize that almost all my excuses are some place where I don't believe in me. Mm. You can tie your excuses directly to places you don't believe in yourself. And because it's a, a hell of a lot harder to change your mind and start believing in yourself than it is to like do something really flashy at something you're already good at. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, but that's, that's one of the primary things I've always appreciated about you is that you, you challenge yourself in public. Okay, here's what we're going to do this month. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it's good stuff. Didn't yeah. mean to get all serious. All well, that's okay. That's okay. It's, it, it's I'm going to have to unpack that. Every excuse comes from a place of, of disbelief. Like that. That's that's really good. I'm going to have to work on that my, myself and unpack that a little bit. So, mm. but that's good. All right, guys. I'm looking at doing probably an eight week creative finance series on Tuesday morning coffee. So we're looking at creating a syllabus starting next week where we're going to be going over specifics of deal structure and uh, just to, to hopefully add value to the investor creator community on Facebook and then the podcast that we're doing. Uh, so you guys be sure and catch us on investor creator community. If you haven't already Facebook group, so you can ask questions and connect with us. Okay. Today, we're going to be talking about why we don't make offers. And so I want to preface it and give some context <laughs> in that anytime you have a process, no process is foolproof. And so what I mean is if we have a process, and it doesn't matter the process, but there's no process that's going to capture everything, okay? So what you really have is, I guess, like the least leaky bucket, right? So you choose a process that matches your personality type, which this certainly did, because I had a tough time going into houses knowing that this family was hurting and the property might have been worth $200,000. And for me to get to the 70% rule, where I could buy it for, you know, 140k, that I had to offer 100. I had an emotional issue mm. doing that, you know. And I also had a lady call one time from North Nashville, and she said, "I'm looking to sell my house. This other other investor just left, and I want you to come." And I said, "Well, tell me about the other investor." And she was practically yelling in the phone now, saying, "Well, he came to the house and he gave me a price." And I ran him out of the front door with my shoe. And I want you to come and make me an offer now. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> like, I cannot go and make this lady an offer. Well, I'll skip lunch and be right down there. <laughs> yeah, let, let me go go get my beaten too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I walked her through kind of a, a semblance of what we do now. And at the end of the conversation, she said, well, maybe his offer was not as crazy as what I thought. After we went through the cost and everything together, went through the numbers, and maybe I should call him back. I was terrified to go to this house, and I encouraged her to go and, <laughs> call, and call this guy back. You know, <laughs> so that's kind of how this began. But you have to understand that. And when I say like we don't make offers, we will not give a price ever. We will walk out of the house or get off the phone before we make an offer. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that I think is a standard that we have to have. Otherwise, if we don't have a standard that's that hard and fast, then we're always going to have exceptions. And then if we always have exceptions, we don't really have a standard anyway. Mm. 
Okay. You can't run a business that way. You can run yourself that way. You can't grow a company that way. Okay. So whenever we say we never make an offer, we never give a price. We never do that ever. Now, a lot of investors, like we've talked about, they'll say, oh yeah, I already do that. I don't make the first offer. Yeah. That's correct, but incomplete. Mm-hmm. I've done it one time and I gave myself an excuse. It was not on one of, it was not one of the company's deals. It was on one of my personal deals. And I did it one time under the guise of if I couch it and say it differently, then it is different. <laughs> well, you can call hot chocolate orange juice if you want to. It don't make it orange juice. It's still hot chocolate. So I slipped my offer in. The guy said yes to it. And while at, right after we because I had was using a paper contract. Right after we signed the contract, the first thing out of his mouth was, man, I'm so glad that you you gave me that for it because I would have taken, boom, 30000 less. Mm. Mm. And and I was trying to figure out where can I jump back into the script right here and get that 30000 back. Yeah, but it was gone. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. It's gone. That old boy bought a new boat with my money. <laughs> so it could have been your boat, Tom. You could have been there right now. That's right. Um, so there's three main reasons, guys, why we never make an offer. Even though this process will alienate a small, small minority of people, you will have sellers that say, well, if you're not going to give me an offer, then I'll call someone else. That's right. And that's okay. Okay. Because what we gain from not making offers, like 30K on this deal, is far more than what we're losing in that one seller that is not motivated enough to go through a process. Yeah. So like one of the things that we we learn in triage, and, and certainly we talk about a lot in call review, is that if the seller is unwilling to go through the process, they're generally not motivated anyway. So like if they're not going to go through the process of giving us what they need for the property and in a, a very systematic way, we whittle that down, then we don't have a motivated seller that generally we're going to buy from anyway. Yeah. One of the primary, primary purposes of the whole triage is so it's kind of like a sword and as sellers come to it, they're going to fall to one side or the other. They're yeah, either motivated right. or they're not motivated. And the more I try to play over here on this side of the fence and convince some people to slip back over here, while I'm doing that, somebody else is talking to my motivated seller. Yeah. And I just need to stay focused, exactly like you're saying there, on the motivated seller. Let them, un- non- no matter how pretty the house is, I don't care if it's on, if it's on the ocean in Malibu, if we ain't buying equity, significant equity on the front end, then it's it's just a house in Malibu. That's right. It's going to be an albatross around your neck. As an investment deal. As an investment deal. Yeah. So um, there's three main reasons, guys, why we don't make offers. The first we've kind of alluded to, making offers will make your best deals worse. It will make your best deals worse. So if you rank order your deals every year, and this is something that we do, and I, I highly recommend that you as well, because there was one year specifically that it changed my way of thinking because I saw that probably six or seven of my favorite 10 deals were deals that we had owner financed because we didn't have to touch them. We got big equity. We got a good down payment and we have cash flow to this day from those transactions. And so it allowed me to be like, huh, like a majority of my favorite deals were owner finance. Like let's do more of a focus there. Now the crazy hot retail market has changed that a little bit, Mm -hmm. but if you make offers, it's going to make your best deals worse. Mm-hmm. So Tony lost 30K. That's real money, guys. Yeah. Like he lost $30,000 on mm-hmm. a deal. And I'm sure you did well on the deal. It, it didn't really matter at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I so, mean, I was glad I did well on the deal because I did the other stuff right. But that one thing cost 30 grand. And 
And I, I've been, I've listened and learned well that I'm not going to go buy a boat with that anyway. I'm going to take that 30 grand and it's going to go into another property. Right. And that next property, I don't even remember what it was, but it could have been one that saved me from paying 15% on 30 grand to do a rehab, which I would have made 150 on. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we're sick about it now, just thinking about it. Well, I'm I'm glad I can bring that up for you again, Tony. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll put a little Maalox or something in your coffee there. But so, Gabriel, so newer apprentice with us maybe three or four weeks ago, mm-hmm. he got his first deal under contract the way that we do it. Now, this guy had been wholesaling and doing you know, fairly well with that. Him and his wife, husband and wife Kenzie. team. Yeah, uh, really sweet, sweet people. And so he came to a support call and basically shared the win that he bought a house. And he was like, they were going through the house after me three or four times saying, what's your offer, what's your offer, what's your offer? And he said, all I heard was you being like, we don't make offers, we don't give a price ever. You know, so he he sidestepped it, sidestepped it in the way that we teach. And then we he gets down. He said, Brad, I ended up buying the house for 60. And I think it's a 170 exit as best as I remember. Need to like 10K worth of work. So good deal. You know, he's well below 50% of value. So it's like really good deal. Good market, Nashville Metro, good market. Been in two weeks. Yeah, it's like two weeks at this point. Mm. And I said, what would you have paid? what would your offer have been had you not gone through this process? He said, I probably would have gone in and offered one to 110. So 40 to $50,000 was created Mm -hmm. from the process of not making an offer, not giving a price because not all the time, but more often than you realize the seller, if your lead quality is good, your seller's price is going to be lower than your price. And so if that's the case, they know more about the property than we do, then I feel like generally, with minor exception, that we should go with their price. Mm-hmm. Okay. The the biggest example that I give of this is Somerville, Alabama. So we bought this property. The the lady owned it free and clear, uh, had an ARV of 245. Okay. Now this was the worst flea infestation I had ever seen. Yes. D- did you go look at yeah, that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I remember. We did the rehab on it. I did the rehab. Okay, cool. So we'd had it treated for fleas three times. And I went to go look at it and had to to run out of the house and throw my jeans away and drive home to Nashville with no pants on. Yeah. Because the the fleas were so bad. Mm -hmm. And that that was after three treatments. State troopers still laugh about that. (laughs) Luckily, I did not get pulled over (laughs) because I'm not sure how I would have explained that. (laughs) And them actually believe it, you know. So... It was probably a 40K rehab. I mean, it wasn't nothing, right. but her price was 15. 15 solved her problem. Okay. Now, it used to be that. <laughs> Say that exit price again. Two, 245. 15 solved her problem. 15 solved her problem. That's all she wanted. She knew it was worth more than that, you know? And in the contracts that we have, the paperwork, the first point that the seller does is they initial a line item that says that we buy and sell for profit. So we're 100% upfront that we're here to buy and sell for profit. You know, This is the example that I use if I'm speaking to a private group or if I'm speaking at a real estate investor association. It's like, here's the house. Here's the pictures. Here's my exit HUD. This is what we got for, for it in terms of price. Here was my rehab budget. What's your offer? And we'll have people say, oh, I'd offer 120. Okay, I got a 120, 115, 110, 130. And I'll have somebody that says, oh, I'd, I'd offer 65. 
I mean, they're raising. They're mm-hmm. out there. They're going to offer just this crazy lowball offer of 65K. Still 50 grand over. And so I'll bring that person up, uh-huh. say, come on up to the front, put my arm around them, say, this person wins because they lost the least amount of money. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so nobody really understands. And then I hit the next slide. It's purchase HUD. We bought it for 15 grand. <clears throat> so this guy lost 50 grand. The rest of y'all lost 100. Yeah. And you know, your words there are so important because in the system to where you have a motivated seller coming to you, it's not as much as we're buying as they're selling. Yeah, that's right. And so we didn't actually buy the house for 15. She sold us the house for 15. Right. That's her price. It's not ours. Yeah. And even sometimes in our ego, we get to thinking, well, we, we buy houses in a sense, but in the real core of the, the, the process, the, through your thinking, you're actually letting them sell you the house. I mean, it's, that's why we don't, we can't give them our offer because we're not actually taking it from them. Right. They are giving it to us. Yeah. Here's the price. Here's the asset. Here's the price. Here's the asset. You know, on the front end, we're not actually buying a house. We're buying a problem. Right. That's right. We, the only time the house comes is in on the back end when we're selling it because because buyers out there are not motivated. They're the motivated ones, and they're buying a house. But on the front end, we're buying a problem from someone Yeah, and uh, and turning it into that asset. So that, that's very powerful the way you put that there. I mean, Well, it's not what everybody's expecting. <laughs> Whenever that person comes up on stage and they feel like they've won something, they, so they again, won the lost the least you, award. You won the I lost the least award. Yeah. So maybe we should make, that's a good idea. We need to have little, little trophies and we can give that out. That's yeah. a good idea. I'm going to make a note of that. I lost the least. All right, cool. So number one reason we don't give offers, it makes your best deals worse if you make an offer on the property. Number two is if you're making offers, you're going to get shopped. You're going to get shopped. So uh, Moses down in South Florida has a deal where, uh, and this one's gone kind of squirrely because the the seller has decided, well, I, I don't really want to sell now, so we're going through that. And and I know the reason why, and the rest of you guys will too once you hear the story. So the lady is a lead. Moses calls the lady, runs triage, and the lady says, well, I have an offer already for 177800 Okay, 177800 It's about a 300K exit, needs some work. So somebody came in, lowballed, but they, they gave an offer. Now she's shopping. She's getting as many offers as she can, and she's she's trying to run a private auction. Mm-hmm. And so Moses says, well, I'm a terrible negotiator, and I'm sure you have a price in mind. So how much are you hoping for for the house? She says, well, if we could get 178. So she's at 177,800. She's going for 178, $200. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she's spending her time to work everybody up. And because Moses didn't give an offer for her to go and shop, that's the highest price she had, which was more than agreeable still. He got a contract. The first guy made an offer. Moses got a contract. That's right. And when me and Tony would go in person, this would happen all the time. People would go through the house. Well, what's your offer? Well, I don't have a number in mind, you know, and we'd go through it and we'd walk out with a contract. The best example that I had of this was probably the last house that I personally bought was in Chattanooga. And it was that blue house, like 1920s, had that big porch with all that, the spindles and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the street now. <laughs> but uh, Chad Bonowitz, uh-huh. who is with us, has done exceptionally well. It started with an E. Was it street? 
I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, <laughs> but Chad had friends that like two or three guys that had already offered on this house. And so, uh, he told him, he said, Brad's going to buy this house. And, and Chad was kind of newer with me and I wanted to go and just kind of test some things. And I was, I was recording it to, to put into the apprenticeship as a perfect presentation. And so here's the situation. The man had inherited it from his parents, but his aunt was like in her mid nineties, I think living there. Mm. And he let her live there rent free. He was taking care of his aunt. Good guy, really good guy. But he, he had inherited the property and it had a mortgage. So he had it sub two already. Okay. His aunt had a, a health issue. So she had been blind in one eye for a while. Now she's going blind in the other one. So she was kind of to the point she needed care. Uh-huh. And so he's moving her out and he was going to sell the house to, to pay, help pay for her care. Right. So we went through the, the script. And I remember specifically with this guy, he asked me three or four times what my offer was as I'm going through the house. And because I didn't give an offer, I got a contract. Okay. <laughs> and as I'm filling out the paperwork, <clears throat> He said something that I thought was really interesting. He, he kind of giggled and he said, you look like you've done this before. I said, oh, just a couple of times, you know, just that, that was kind of it. But I thought it was really interesting. At that point, he felt so comfortable uh-huh. that he was with someone that could handle the process. And, you know, the, the process was so fluid that he was like, you know what? You look like you've, you've done this a lot. You know? So that comfort thing you talked about, a, a highly motivated seller is not running an auction. Is mm-hmm. not running a private auction. That's right. So having someone that is letting them tell you what can they take, what can you give me that makes this work for me, relaxes them. If they're having to run a private auction, they're a nervous wreck. If they're a high-rated seller, because they're just really needing for this to go. Folks that are not motivated, they're comfortable running a private auction. They don't have to do anything in the next 11 days. Right. They're not trying to figure out where great grandmother is going to stay and do I have, am I going to get enough from this to, so when they're giving you the offer, or it's not really the offer, but when they're telling you what the least they can take is, it's either going to work for them or it's not going to work for them. And if they're telling you 99% of the time, it works for them. They wouldn't be giving you that number right. if it didn't work for them. Right. So it's, it's, they, they are going to feel more at ease. They are going to feel, not feel like you're trying to, to um, get something from them. That's right. That's right. It's a much more amicable situation when we're not, you know, you want 200, I say 100, you're upset, you know, and it's like, well, how do I know exactly what number to give that is going to appease you but mm-hmm. not, and cost me the least? Mm-hmm. Well, there's no way to know. Right. So what you have in statistics, you have what's called a type two error, which is you don't know that that you lost something, you know? So like, Realize losses, you always know that those, you know, those are the deals where you did something that you shouldn't have done. The type two error is you should have done something and you didn't. Mm -hmm. And within the negotiation, there's a lot of that if you're making offers, Mm -hmm. you know, but I never really liked the idea of going into someone's house, especially if I knew that there was a problem that I, I felt like I could probably help with. And it's this, let me add to your stress by lowballing, you know, it's like, you give me your number. You know, and then I'll see if I can make it work. And then that way you're not having to, to shop around anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I really feel like it's a, a good thing. And Chad Bonowitz has coined this in some of his marketing, which I think is really genius. But he, he, he has a no awkward offer guarantee. So what he's doing with that is he's throwing shade on everybody else that, that's giving offers. And he's pre-framing it to the seller that you're going to get in awkward situations with these other people. 
Mm. And I thought, I like it. That is really beautiful. Chad's solid anyway, though. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so, um, so number two, it's going to to create shoppers. If you leave someone with an offer, if someone wants to look at your paperwork, guys, that's fine. Leave them a blank contract. Don't fill it out. Don't fill it out. Like, here it is. If they want to talk to an attorney, I think that's a great idea. Here's the blank form, okay? That's going to serve you guys a lot better because you will get shopped. And for people that have been doing this for any amount of time, they remember situations, especially younger, early in their career, where they they really wanted a deal. They thought they had it. They left the contract, said, let's talk tomorrow. And then when they called back the next day, they said, oh, well, we sold to someone else for $1,000 more. They got shopped. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, if they had the script work and the process that we do, they'd have had the contract. Right. But they got shopped. Right. So that's number two. Yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I mean, it, it's just, it makes too much sense for some folks. It's not grand enough. It's not like I don't get to s- say that I got it for. Right. You know, it, it's the offer thing that makes me the aggressor. You know, the second you have to be the aggressor in order to feel good about the situation you also don't realize that you've become the motivated one. That's right. And if you if you take away from them the motivation that they entered into this with, you, they now have leverage over you. Yeah. Just leave the motivation in their place. Let them tell you what they'll take for it. And most of the time, you're going to walk away with a contract. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So third and final, and and probably the most impactful, in my opinion, is... If we make offers, it's really tougher to creative finance. It's really yeah. tougher to get to creative finance. So like if if Tony's selling a house and he's asking for 200 and I offer 120 and he says yes, then it's really tough for me to go back and say, oh, well, well by the way, let me tell you how I'm going to get you that 120. You mean, I thought you were going to give me 120. Right. And so that's what happens. You know, if Tony says, I need this and we whittle that down and then we say, well, I could probably get you that if it's like that and we go into one of our four deal structures that are outside of cash or bank financing Mm -hmm. or any wholesaling. We don't do really any of that. Then we're in a position where we're creating additional equity through terms. So like guys, there's two kinds of equity. There's price equity and that's what everybody talks about, but there's terms equity. And so it's like there's this whole other world that people don't even realize exists. Mm -hmm. So like take, take, um, we had a deal this might have been Rick's deal, where he was buying one, and it might have been Moses, I'm not sure. But he thought that the ARV was 150. I looked at it, I was like, I think this is 200 to 225. This, I can't remember the town. This was in Maryland, now that I think about it. But he had 100K first that he was taking sub two, and it was at like 2.75% or, or 3, 3.0 or something. It was so cheap that it didn't even matter what the ARV was to yeah. a big extent. Like even if it was worth what we were paying, the equity was in the rate because we can owner finance that at 7.9% easy. And if you're borrowing at three and owner financing at 7.9, you're making more literally than the bank is in interest and they lent the money. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's really tough to mess up. It's really tough to get to that kind of a deal structure if you're making an offer because the presumption is that if I get an offer and I say that that's cash, you know, and so what a lot of people try to do is they, well, here's three offers. So I have my all cash offer that's ridiculously yeah. low, and then here's my creative offer one and creative offer two, and they think, well, I'm going to kind of frame it up with the low ball cash offer, 
so that people go to option two or three, which is what I want in the first place. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a better process than some that I've seen, but it just creates confusion mm -hmm. because I've tried that. And what I've seen for me, at least, <laughs> is people wanted this price with those terms. So they wanted the, the, the price of the owner finance deal, mm -hmm. but all cash at closing. And they don't understand why you can't do it. Right. You know, it's just a, a tougher position. Or why it's not best. I mean, we, the whole idea of equity, we are coming into the situation and we are giving ourselves five or six different opportunities in the process. And we probably ought to do show on that one day, everything from capturing equity and how you market to all the way through the yeah. process. Yeah. I mean, if you stay in position, if you keep, if you hold your frame to where they're the motivated one, they're going to know as they go through the process, if this works for me, if this works for me, if this works for me, this works for me. And so where we come out of the frame, we pull ourselves out of the frame and we start trying to think about which one of these is the best one. Well, all of them are potentially the best one. It's not just whether it's all cash or whether it's, it's, um, if we can buy it sub two, or should I do buy, buy it sub two, or should I get some now, some later? I saw in one of the comments yesterday, some said they got they bought one subject two with this much cash. And the first comment was, how did you handle the cash? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So it's all of these are places to where equity can be captured. And yet, at the same time, th this is not something you're taking away from someone they're knowing as you go through the process that, yes, this works for me. Yes, this works for me. Yes, this will work for me. And so right. if you stick with the frame that's laid out and the way that we walk through it, you're going to find yourself capturing a little bit of equity the whole way through the process, even in rehabbing oh, yeah. more efficiently. Yeah. And the length of time that you, I mean, it, it, it is amazing through the whole process, but holding the frame is so important. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's it's fundamental. It's hard to create creative finance. It is. <laughs> yeah. So, final thought for me, guys. So, as you go through any process, especially if you're running a different process now, it, it can be difficult to switch. And so, about half of the people that join us for training are people that are absolutely new, and then the other half are people that are they have a, a good existing business, but maybe they've been wholesaling or just fix and flipping. And they haven't built long term assets or they're having a tough time scaling the business, which we can do having more profit on each deal because we never made an offer. If we bridge the gap to creative finance, we can do so many more transactions with the same amount of capital mm. and the same amount of resources. And it just creates a whole different dynamic within the business. But we have to buy into the process, and that's really tough for people. So just realize that no process is foolproof. And I'm sure that in 10 years, it's going to look slightly different than what it does now. Because we're still refining as well. But I don't think it's going to look a whole lot different. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to go to ever making offers again. And so just realize that you're in a process now. Is your process the best? Look at those kinds of things in your business. And this is something that you could should continually look at in terms of processes. Where exactly would I grade this process if I was an outside consultant coming in to look and really see, like, can we make this more efficient? Can we make this more predictable? Can we make this more effective for the sellers that we're trying to serve? Mm -hmm. Final thoughts for you, Ty? I, I mean, that's it. That's it as far as I'm concerned. You just you find what works and stick with it. Get better at it. Yeah. Instead of swapping from one thing to the other all the time, find it something that works and get really, really good at it over time. That's it. 
That's it. All right, guys. We'll see you guys next Tuesday, Tuesday morning coffee. If you need anything, reach out, support at bradsmudman.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.